In Luke 18, 1 through 8, we have what's commonly known as the parable of the persistent widow. It's a great parable. It's one of the favorites uh, for those when we're trying to teach on the importance of prayer and being persistent in prayer. Persistence is is a great point. Jesus makes that same point in the very first verse of Luke 18. But is there more to this than just that we ought to pray and be persistent in it? See, the, the way the chapter and verse divisions fall, it actually makes the, one of the sub-points that we ought to pray and be persistent the main point, and oftentimes we miss the very overarching point of this parable. And as a matter of fact, because of that, sometimes that overarching point is either entirely missed Or it's just addressed kind of as a curious fact, after the fact, so to speak. So, what is the overarching point of the parable of the persistent widow? Is it just a parable about reminding us to pray often? Or is there something more? I think a tip that it's something more is in verse 8 of this chapter 18. Look at that. Jesus says, speaking of the Heavenly Father, I tell you... He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So Jesus ends this parable with a reference to his second coming. That's odd. Think about it. If you just look at those eight verses alone, Jesus is saying, giving a parable on teaching about prayer, and then he ends it by asking a question of if he's going to find faith, in the earth when he comes again in his second coming. You see, here's a Bible study tip. Whenever you're studying scripture and something just as jumps, comes out of left field, that's usually an indicator that there's more going on than you first may have realized. You see, this parable is actually not intended to be a standalone parable, these eight verses on in and of themselves, and that's how it's normally treated. Jesus tells this parable, he teaches this parable as the concluding point on a kingdom theme that he started because of a debate or a question that the Pharisees came to him with, going back to chapter 17 and verse 20. So the parable of the persistent widow is actually to wrap up an argument Jesus is making, a point he's making regarding his second coming. So to understand what the overarching point of this parable is, we have to see it in its broader context. So, with your finger, look over to chapter 17 and verse 20, and we'll pick it up there. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, there it is, so this starts the conversation, and then chapter 18, verse 8, ends the conversation on the kingdom of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Okay, so here's the broader conversational context. The Pharisees are talking to Jesus, and they want to know when the kingdom's going to be here. The question is, when is Messiah, what they mean by this is, when is Messiah going to show up and deliver the nation of Israel from the oppressor, from the oppressing hand of Rome? That's really what they're asking. That's what they mean when they want the kingdom is because they don't want to be under the rule of Rome anymore. Israel wants to be its own nation again. Jesus' response completely baffles them. We just read it, verse 20 to 21. 
In effect, Jesus is saying, look, if, if the only way you're going to recognize God's kingdom in the midst of you is about some kind of miraculous event that brings Rome down and you getting what you want, you will surely miss it because the kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. See, what he means is that wherever people are beginning to recognize Christ as Lord and bowing their knee to him, his reign is being established. And if all the, the, the Pharisees were looking for were these mighty uh, catastrophic events where Rome's overthrown, they're missing the point of the kingdom. But notice, to, in verses 22 and 24, to the disciples, he warns the disciples about making the opposite mistake, right? So, so let me read verses 22 and 24. And to his disciples, so verse 20 was addressed to the Pharisees, 22 to the disciples, He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Verse 23, and they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out and follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So to the Pharisees, Christ warned to not look for catastrophic signs and events but that the kingdom was in fact quietly amongst them, yet powerfully so. To the disciples, however, in verses 23 and 24, he warns that Christ's final appearance could be anything but catastrophic. It's not some hidden phenomena tucked away in a corner where only a select few are going to figure it out. Everyone's going to be aware of it. It's going to be lightning that flashes in the sky. You can't miss it. And then there's this interesting note in verse 25. But first, Jesus says, he, referring to the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So right there in that verse, he's comparing and contrasting his first coming with his second. Scholars say that the difference between the first coming in Christ and his second is like the difference between a candle and a bolt of lightning. So what's going on here is that Jesus is describing to them, no, this is what, what we call the already, not yet. Anyone familiar with that term? Have anyone heard the expression, the already, not yet? This is the idea, yes, that God's kingdom has already come, but in its fullest consummation, it's not yet. And so the kingdom realities of, of God's kingdom has punched through this world. God's redemptive plan is here amongst his people. God is bringing salvation, not just to the Jews, to all people. Lives are being changed. But that's not the full extent of his plan. It awaits a future day. So already it's here, but not yet. And by the way, if you were here for our study in the book of Ephesians, that's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this community that bears witness that there's this dual reality in life that kingdom realities have now changed us even though that kingdom may not fully be yet realized. So it's already in that we have the fruit of the Spirit, we have forgiveness of sins, we have the power of the Spirit working amidst us, the reconciliation that God promises, but it's not yet because we're still still dealing with remnant sin. We're still living in a fallen world. And so Jesus is trying to help them understand this to them was a, a unheard of because the day of the Lord was always supposed to be this boom, one-time event, and that's the way it was going to be. And Jesus was introducing, no, 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 I came first for a different purpose than what I'm coming next. 
And then in verses 26 to 30, Christ is describing what it will be like in the days leading up to his final appearance. What's those days going to be like? He says, it's going to be like the days of Noah before the flood. It's going to be like the days in Sodom before its destruction. Look at verse 26 and verse 28. He makes those comparisons. Just as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus says, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Look at verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is saying that the days right before his coming will be just like the days in, right before Noah's catastrophe, right before the Sodom's catastrophe, full of busy and ordinary life. I mean, look at the text. Look at verse 27, verse 28. They were eating, drinking, marrying, uh, building, planting, buying, and selling. In other words, the days before Jesus' final appearance, the life in the world is going to be basically business as usual until that lightning flash in the sky and everything changes. Then, in verse 32, by the way, this is all foundation to this parable we're studying. Then in verse 32, Jesus warns the disciples not to be like Lot's wife. If you remember the story, the angels show up in the city of Sodom and near Gomorrah, and they say, you need to leave, God's wrath is coming, and and immediately they just have to pack their bags, they don't even have time to put things together, they're running out, running away, because God's judgment was coming, but Lot's wife kept looking back, as Lot and everyone else was making a beeline out of there, Lot's wife kept looking back, and God's judgment came, and the, the narrative in Genesis is she turned into a pillar of salt. So Jesus says, don't be like Lot's wife. Look at the text again, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So really all of verse 30 to 37, after Jesus talks about what those days are going to look like, it's going to look like the days of Noah, it's going to look like the days of Lot, he warns them, don't be like Lot's wife. And that's what all the way down to verse 37 is. And remember in our parable of the sheep and the goat, we learned last week that Jesus says at that end time, there's only two types of people. There's going to be those who inherit the kingdom and then those who get cast out. Just as here we have in verse 30 to 37, there are two people working in a field. One gets taken, one's left. There are two people sleeping in a bed. One gets taken, one's left behind. The point being of that parable and this is that the eternal destiny of God's people hangs in the balance of their expectation and anticipation of His coming. So, the parable of the persistent widow is directly tied, directly tied into this kingdom theme. And the question that Jesus is asking in verse 8 of chapter 18, will he find faith when he returns is directly connected to this context of his teaching. Is he going to find the faith on the earth, like the faith of this widow, who had this single-minded persistence and in the parable to receive justice? Or will his people be like Lot's wife? Are they going to be distracted and too in love with the things of this world? 
Is the warning that Jesus gives here in chapter 17 to not be like Lot's wife in loving the world too much enough to strengthen their faith? Can his disciples endure in those days? Can they endure to the end? See, that's the conversation that's taking place. And the natural question that the disciples are going to have, like I would have if I were there listening to this, is how? How can they maintain their edge in loving Christ? How can they endure to the end? How can they not be like Lot's wife who loved the world too much? And how can they be committed wholeheartedly to Christ? How can they resist the relentless temptation not to be caught up, not to be distracted, not to be dulled by the business and pressures of everyday life? Right? That, that's what's going on. Now, notice with me in verse 28 of chapter 17. Notice there, it's talking about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That, that phrase, this narrative has made it into our culture as a term for sexual perversion, right? But notice when he's talking about what it's going to be like in the days before his coming, and he talks about Sodom, he doesn't say anything about any kind of inherent sinful behavior. Notice it's all mundane, regular activities of life as we even know it today. Same thing with the days of Noah. They were drinking, they were eating, they were having marriages, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Normal everyday actions. But they were all godless in the sense that All the people lived without a reference towards God. We would say that they were living functionally atheistic lives. Now, I love John Piper, what John Piper has to say on this. Uh, I think I have a quote behind me on the screens. John says this, The good things in life can make us just as insensitive, insensitive to the reality of God as the gross things in life can. So, the disciples of Jesus are left in a tremendous battle, he says, which most people don't even know is going on. The battle to maintain radical, heartfelt, self-denying faith in Christ, not only in the threat of persecution and sinful temptations, and I would say it's probably actually easier in those environments, but also in the threat of ordinary home and business life, which can blunt all our sensitivity to God's eternal kingdom. See, the danger we face now is how do we maintain a love for Christ that makes a difference in our lives, in the world around us, without being swallowed up by the sheer ordinariness of life? How do we do that? How do we endure with such a faith? How do we avoid being like Lot's wife who loved the world too much and was too taken by the things that will all pass away? Now, with all that laid, now you have the context for this parable of the persistent widow and the longest introduction to a sermon I've ever done. Okay. All that was introductory to get us here, right? Now you understand. So then Jesus wants to answer those questions, and he does so, like he so often does, with a great story. And he makes two points in this parable. And this parable is unique in that a lot of the parables Jesus tells, 
he throws out the story, and, 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 and usually it's pretty obvious enough for us to pick up the meaning, or we get a glimpse into the backroom conversation between Jesus and the disciples where he's explaining it. This parable's unusual in that right out of the gate, Jesus tells us the point he's trying to make. So the, the two points he's trying to make, he says the first point right out of the gate, and when he ends the parable, he lands with a second point, as if to say, look, I'm going to tell you a story to, to keep you engaged, but I don't want you to miss the point. So here they are. And here are the two points. Number one, and and we're going to look at them one at a time. Number one, from verse one, prayer is a critical component to keeping an edge to our faith. Okay, Notice Jesus says it. And he told them a parable to this effect, to this point, that they ought always to pray and don't lose heart. So that's his first point. His second point is at the end, verse 7b to 8a, And it's this, God hears and answers the prayers of his people, even if it seems like his appearance is longer than they can endure. So let's look at those one at a time. Point number one. Notice again, uh, we talked at verse eight. Jesus is saying, will he find this kind of faith in the original language in the Greek text? There's an article, the definite article. Will he find the faith, it says, referring to the widow's kind of faith, this passionate pursuit of the single-mindedness that she had? That's his question in verse 8. Will I find that kind of faith? But when you link his question in verse 8 to this command in verse 1, and it is a command when he's saying he tells them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. It is a Greek particle that also can mean it's necessary. You ought to do this. You know how sometimes we say things, well, I, you know, you tell your kids, hey, would you mind washing the dishes? Well, I put it like a question, but really I'm telling them, wash the dishes, right? Same kinds of linguistic things happening. He tells them a parable that they ought always to pray. It's actually a command. He's telling them this parable to pray, So when you link his question, will the Son of Man, when he returns, find this kind of single-minded faith with the command to pray, the implication is that prayer and faith ebb and flow together. They stand and fall together. Right? If we lose heart, like it says in verse 1, right, also can be translated grow weary, depending on what translation you have. If we lose heart and we begin to drift from praying then it's not far behind that where our faith begins to ebb as well. It's just just a natural way that human beings operate. The Lord's aware of the human tendency to grow weary. So he says right here, don't grow weary. Later in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle uh, writes to the Galatians to to not grow weary. So let me me read to you. If you're a note taker, write down Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says... And let us not grow weary of doing good. Uh, to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he says uh, the same kind of thing. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not grow weary. Here's what I want to point out. In Galatians, you have the motivation to not grow weary. So look back at Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, uh, Do not grow weary in doing good. Here's the motivation. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So to the Galatians, he says, don't grow weary. And here's the motivation. If you don't grow weary, you don't give up, you'll reap a great reward. And to the Corinthians, he gives the means by which we don't grow weary, right? 
Now for this, again, it's that chapter and verse thing. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 18 of uh, 2 Corinthians 4. It's one of my favorite passages here. Chapter 3, verse 18. Again, when Paul was writing this, he didn't write chapter 3, verse 18. That's not it. So we're just going to bleed over from 3.18 to 4.1. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. Let me unpack that. This is probably one of the most amazing verses on on the theological doctrine of sanctification. All that means is how we become like Christ. 3.18, and we all with unveiled face. What's he talking about there? He's saying, look, we get it now. We're not blinded. We're not blinded by the enemy in this world. Our faces are unveiled. We see the truth that's in the gospel. We all see it with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We have a laser focus on who Jesus is. And look at this, by that very process, by beholding who Jesus is, are being transformed. Wow. You know what, this is kind of a side benefit here. One of the sure ways to grow to be like Christ, Paul is saying here is, you have a laser focus on who he is. You're gazing upon him. That very process, you're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Therefore, having this ministry by God's mercy, because we didn't deserve any of this, we don't lose heart. The way we don't lose heart is by focusing in like a laser beam on who Jesus is. And when we do that, by virtue of that very process, we become more like who he is. That's the means by which we don't grow weary. And the motivation is, and when we continue on, there's a great reward. And just practically speaking, one of the best ways to not grow weary as a Christian is to remember the change that Jesus brought into your life. Now, if you became a Christian outside of your youth or something like that, do you remember what it was like before? Do you remember getting radically saved? Right? I have a friend. I just spoke to him last night. He was, by, the, by his late teens, very handsome, Puerto Rican, Portuguese, Italian guy, had his own auto detailing business with high-end sports cars in the wealthy area of Hawaii Kai, and, and, and he lived for the world. He had the money, he had the looks, he had the clothes, but when he came to know Christ, something radical happened, the neurons fried or something. Because when he became a Christian, he threw away all his clothes, the, the clothes he used to wear to go nightclubbing and meet women, and all he wore, I think it was probably six months, eight months of me knowing him, the only thing he wore, and I'm not exaggerating, I tried to get a picture from him last night, but we couldn't get it done in time. He had five bright pairs of fluorescent Converse shoes, five bright pairs of fluorescent Bermuda shorts back from the 80s and 90s, and 10 fluorescent pair shirts, either tank tops or t-shirts, that said, Jesus, no compromise, and that's all he wore. I am not exaggerating at all. That's all this guy wore. Because he was so radically realized he was saved and he didn't want to lose his edge, he was like a walking billboard to remind you of the edge we need to keep as Christians. Now, thankfully, in God's mercy, he got married and now he dressed, his wife dresses him normal, right? But the, the point is, he's, when, we, when I think about what life was like when I got saved, that's an anchor point memory for me. Because this man, in his outfit, his fashion, visibly represented what needs to be going on in our hearts all the time. 
Another way to fight weariness is through godly fellowship in a local church. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says this, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Right? Do you have people in your life that remind you of the gospel? Are there people in your life to remind you of your need of grace? Are there people in your life that remind you not to lose the edge you have for the cause of Christ? Are there people in your life to remind you about about your need for grace today as it was the day you became a Christian? Look, we live in a whole world. There are entire industries that will remind you of your hobbies, your vacations, your man cave, your shopping trip, your academic career, your job promotion, all those things, but no industry other than the church and other than this fellowship of believers to remind you of your need to love Christ more than the world. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Stimulate one another to love and good works because our natural tendency is to not. And that's why the fellowship is so important. That's why there's no such thing as lone ranger Christians. Because we need each other to remind us of our need for grace every day. And there's this great hymn that, that this parable this parable of the persistent widow is what it's really all about is voiced in this hymn from um, this verse from Come Thou Fount. You guys are familiar with that song, right? So I have the lyrics behind me. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Do you feel that you are a debtor, that you owe grace something every day? I mean, these are songs that you have probably sung at least once in your life. I've certainly sung it many times. But that first, in that first sentence, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to thee. I owe you grace. I owe everything to you. Let thy goodness like a fetter. You know what a fetter is? It's an iron shackle, right, that they used to put on hands and feet made out of iron. Let thy goodness like this fetter bind what? My wandering heart to thee. This is a prayer saying, Lord, I know I'm going to do something I shouldn't. I want you to bind me to you, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Can we be honest? Do you, are you prone to wander? I am. I am all the time. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And here it is. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. This is what the, the, the parable of the persistent widow is about. This parable teaches us to be persistent in prayer. This is the goal of that prayer. If you walk away from this parable and all you're getting is that Jesus wants me to be persistent in my prayers, that's good, but that's only half of it. But it also can be dangerous because you might think, as long as I just keep praying enough and enough and enough, God's going to give me things. Jesus doesn't have that in mind, at least not here. What he has in mind is, I want my disciples to not love this world like Lot's wife loved the world and was judged What he has in mind is, I want my disciples to keep their bleeding edge being ferocious in their faith so that when I come back, I'm going to find it. That's the persistence of the the, the point of this persistent widow. So the first point is that that prayer is critical to keeping our, our edge of our faith. Second point, God hears 
and answers the prayers of his people, even if it seems that his appearance is longer than they can endure. So here again, people have no problem seeing themselves as the widow. And actually, she's a real good representation of the church in a hostile world, right? She's vulnerable. She, she doesn't have resources. She doesn't have anyone looking out for her. She can only appeal to a judge. That makes sense. That sounds like the church in the world. But what they have a struggle with is this heartless judge. Is God supposed to be represented by this heartless judge? And here's the thing. Number one, parables aren't meant to be the kind of thing where you look in it and go, okay, this means that, this means the other thing, this means the other thing. That's not the point of parables. That's not how you study them. Parables are meant to make one, two, three points at the most. And all the other kind of details, window dressing to bring the story alive, right? So in this case, the woman's praying for justice, demanding justice, because that was a common situation in Palestine. Widows didn't have anyone to stand up for them. So the point isn't to say, well, she's praying for justice. We should be praying for justice too. That's not the point. The point is her single-minded focusness and, and receiving from God. And again, this heartless judge, how can this person stand in for God? It's a literary tool called comparison by absurdity, right? What that means is, if a heartless judge is willing to concede and give in to the demands of this widow who he doesn't care about, he doesn't fear her, nor does he fear God, but out of the sheer force of her persistence, he's willing to give her what she wants, how much more a loving Heavenly Father would give to his own children, his own disciples who cry out to him. And in verse 7, this is the exact point Jesus draws out. Always pray. Don't lose heart. If you cry out to God day and night, if you always pray and don't grow weary, you will not be like Lot's wife. You will not love the world more than him. You will not be dulled by the daily pressures and pleasures of this world. You will not lose your edge for the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, this is uh, really poignant for us who live in South Orange County, isn't it? Um, When my wife and I and our family bought our house across the freeway, one of the first things I did was I went to that library on Marguerite and La Paz, and I got a book about the history of South Orange County because I wanted to learn about this new place I'm calling home. And, and, uh, you know, when they were thinking of selling the concept of South County to the rest of the world, they came up with a great marketing plan. I see some nodding hands. Anybody remember what the phrase was? What was it? The California promise, that's right, the promise. And people kind of bought that and came in droves to buy houses and they would line up to buy houses like people line up to buy iPhones today, right? My neighbor Tom was one of them. They were here like I think a week to be one of the first to buy a house in in the promise, they didn't say promised land, but they might as well. And you know what, for the most part, and it's true, isn't it? Life in South Orange County, it's wonderful, People are nice, streets are clean, it's green, it's God's blessing here. It's so wonderful. Yeah, Mission Viejo, that's where I live, apparently is the only planned community to date that actually lived up to its master plan. Pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, other trivia that I'm not going to get into right now. The point is this. If we're not careful, the very blessings that we have been afforded the very things that make life so delicious and great for us can become the very means. Those exact things become the very means by which our kingdom-mindedness is dulled, 
our passion for the gospel becomes blunted, and our vision to see what really matters gets blurred by beaches and malls and restaurants and sports and lakes and family-friendly activities and all that stuff. Now, now before you guys say, oh, Pastor Rink's a stick in the mud, man, that's, that's not it. Don't hear me say that. Lori was out of town, so I was on the lake yesterday with my boy, my kids, and one of those pedal boats, and I had my feet in the water. I was like, this is awesome. This is great. But as I laid there, I could really see as I was thinking through Jesus' commands to his people, oh man, I could really go on autopilot. Life is just good. There isn't the burning urgency because I don't see it as viscerally or visibly as so many Christians throughout the world see. We live in a fallen world that's hostile to the gospel. Because I'm on a lake, man, I'm on a pedal boat, and I'm going to go get a snow cone after this. Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, ask the Haymans, they know. I go to that snow cone place like five times a week now because I love shave ice. But it it's a problem if I've become blunted and think this is what it's about. And I buy the, the marketing ploy that this is the promise. This is not the promise. We live in a fallen world where people live lives of quiet desperation. They don't have that on their vanity plate, right? <laughs> hey, I am living a life of quiet desperation. That's not how it works. But if you listen and you look, that's what's going on. And if I just look on the surface, I'll miss it entirely. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. See, God designed us to enjoy goodness. God designed us to enjoy beauty and and pleasures and all those things God designed his people for. But because of the fall, our filter to discern what the best is and how to achieve it is messed up. And if I think I'm going to have life from those good things, I'm either going to be at best disappointed or at worst betrayed. Because they were never intended to give me life, nor any of us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus' warnings, as we begin to land this, Jesus' warning, his encouragement, his command to pray and keep our edge is because he knows that leads to the best possible flourishing for a human being. Because true life is not found in so many of the things that distract us and consume us all the time. True life is found in being fully engaged with the creator of our souls and being in fellowship with him. He says, when I come back, I want to find that kind of faith. That's what I want to see. And the only way to get that is if you pray, you pray, you pray that you continue to have that bleeding edge in your faith, that you're not distracted and dulled by the pleasures of this world so you don't become like Lot's wife. That's why we have the parable of the persistent widow. Let's pray.